0: We're carrying on in our, in our series, and uh, we're not, remember, looking directly at sort of the life and thought of Martin Luther, I mean, we are, but we're really considering more question of the Reformation and Imperial politics and society, we're, we're, we're looking at Luther's life, certainly, and, and at his thought, but we're trying to consider Luther in relationship to, uh, to Rome, to the papacy, and in relationship to the empire, uh, to Charles, uh, the fifth, the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, and today we're going to begin for the next couple of weeks looking at some of the applications of Luther's theology to society. These were not uh, applications necessarily that were made by Luther himself to society, but by, uh, but by Luther's followers, those who heard Luther uh, preach and teach, those who read Luther's writings, tried to put some of his insights into practice uh, in society. Not always in the ways that Luther himself would have imagined uh, or even appreciated. Um, Luther, to the extent that we've talked about Luther as a young man, Luther was fundamentally a a conservative medieval monk. That's his his default mode. He's not so much uh, a modern man uh, looking to transform and change society. Um, and Luther, so sometimes Luther uh, communicated uh, in such a way as to stir up a lot of energy for reform, for revolution even, uh, and then seemed kind of surprised by this reaction uh, because his basic default was a kind of conservatism. Take it slow, steady, don't do anything too wild, too radical. Uh, but today we're going to start looking at the social implications uh, of, of, uh, of Luther's teaching for a whole host of his, uh, of his, of his followers. Now remember Luther at this point, as far as our Sunday school is concerned, is still, still kidnapped. Um, we've not forgotten him. That's young, young monk Luther. We will break him free, uh, shortly. Now uh, that's young Luther. That's pretty much how he would have looked, uh, at the Diet of Worms. So this is an engraving by Lucas Cranach, uh, the painter we've been talking about at various points. Pretty stern, clean shaven, bold headed gentleman there. Uh, well, he's in hiding. Just to let you know, this is what's what's Luther doing in hiding. Um, he's he's growing a beard, uh, and, and 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 as part of a disguise, he was disguised himself as a German knight. Started carrying around a sword, rode around on a horse with lance and an armor, um, hiding in this Wartburg castle. Uh, that's what he's up to. He's growing um, growing a beard. No connection at all to my attempt to grow a beard here. Uh, I'm not trying to identify with Luther, the exile. Um, I have a lot of things in common with Luther, but not, but not that. My, he and I share a wedding anniversary, peculiar little fun fact, but it helps me always remember what my wedding anniversary is. Uh, don't tell Elizabeth that I first remember that it's Luther's wedding anniversary. <laughs> uh, June 13th, in case anyone is, is curious. Uh, but at this point, when Luther's hiding away in this castle, he is was, he was not, yet, not yet married. Um, which also means he didn't have his wife finding gray hairs in his beard uh, to, to insult him uh, like Elizabeth does to me. It was a few more years before, before Luther would be get married. I'm kind of thinking about losing the whole beard thing because of the gray hairs, but enough about me. Uh, I just wanted to remind you that's uh, <laughs> to tell you more. But <laughs> uh, uh, it's an NHL playoffs thing. I don't know. Minnesota is, is, is still in it. So, uh, okay, today we're actually gonna begin, we're gonna basically move out in the, in the next three Sunday schools in, in concentric circles, moving out from, from Wittenberg um, to uh, the, the, some of the rest of the German nobility that we introduced last time, uh, the knight errant and the poet adventurer um, and so forth, and then we'll move out to even uh, the peasants in, in the entire Holy Roman Empire, um, uh, all trying to apply Luther's teaching Uh, to the social world that they're they're living in. But today we're starting out um, in in Wittenberg. So the question is, Luther's hiding, growing a beard, pretending to be a knight uh, in a castle a long ways away from Wittenberg, uh, at least a couple days' ride. Uh, What's happening in Wittenberg? Who's in charge? Uh, Well, three reformers uh, were more or less left in charge of the Reformation, directing the Reformation while Luther's gone. The first is is a, probably a pretty well-known reformer, Philip Melanchthon. You, have you heard of Melanchthon? Most people have heard of Philip Melanchthon. He was like R- Luther's uh, right-hand man, his, uh, his sidekick, so to speak. Um, Luther's the kind of wild, flamboyant, big personality, and, and Philip is a kind of gentle, precise uh, logician, so to speak. Luther would often say, um, I sort of swing wildly and chop down the trees, And then Luther or Melanchthon comes along and and stacks the wood. It's very orderly, precise sort of figure. Um, So Melanchthon was in charge of of the Reformation as one of the reformers. But Melanchthon, you can't, this is a Lucas Cranach, another painting by Lucas Cranach. This is actually taken a few years after the period I'm talking about. We're talking about 1521 to 1522. Um, At this point, Cranach is actually quite young. 23 or 24 years old um, and, and so there were There were many in Wittenberg Who were his superiors Academically and in terms of position Within the church uh, But they're lesser known figures uh, Andreas Karlstadt That's this gentleman uh, This is a, a, an image taken of him uh, Wood cutting, I think a few years after the period we're talking about, but he was older, Um, Andreas Karlschott, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about today. Karlschott was a graduate of Wittenberg University, um, maybe 10, 15 years before Luther uh, arrived, and almost immediately after graduation, uh, rose high in the ranks in the Wittenberg church uh, and in the university there uh, at his alma mater. He, he He became the chair of the theology faculty uh, and then became the chancellor of the University of Wittenberg. He's the one who actually conferred Luther's doctoral agree, degree uh, on him. So karl was probably the most, he was an archdeacon in the church, of Wittenberg, and for, for Lutherans, that's, um, that's big stuff. Uh, so he was, he was, for the most part, the man in charge. The other reformer, we don't even have a picture of him, Conrad Zwilling was his name, um, almost totally forgotten to history. We don't even have, have an image um, his name is Willing, so I think maybe we could safely say he went on to become a knife maker. Um, no one laughed. That's okay. Probably not. We have no no reason to believe that he was a knife maker, but um, you guys are a tough audience today here. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a safe assumption, yeah. Um, so shot was was left in charge. <clears throat> um, it's it's interesting to note that uh, originally. Originally, Karlstadt was the one uh, that Johannes Eck challenged to a debate in Leipzig in 1519. Uh, When the challenge was first issued, it was issued to Karlstadt because he was the most senior um, sort of member of faculty and fledgling reformer. But by the time, in the months between the challenge that came from Eck and the actual uh, disputation in Leipzig, just in those few months, Luther was a kind of rising star and was already overshadowing uh, Karl Schott by the time uh, the debate began, and so uh, Luther's the one who ended up debating Eck uh, at Leipzig. Karl Schott rode along uh, as a kind of armed guard. He's the one who led the students by horseback armed in order to protect uh, Luther. A little bit of a radical, maybe a first instance, uh, or first, first little hint that that, uh, that Karlstadt supposed to be a monk. Certainly it's not appropriate for a monk to carry around a sword, uh, but he went to Leipzig uh, armed to the hilt. Maybe a first insight that he's not trusting fully of the government and of the church, um, which turns out to have been wise for his case. Um, So 1519, Luther and and Karlstadt are friends. Um, There's even a cartoon made uh, by Lucas Cranach again based on a sermon that Karlstadt preached. Um, this is called Karlstadt's uh, The Heaven and Hell Wagons, basically. Uh, if you've heard of getting, getting caught in the paddy wagon, uh, this is kind of it. There's a wagon on its way to heaven on the top, and a wagon on the bottom that's it's on its way uh, to hell, um, if this is actually what a, I mean. This is what a cartoon looked like. Not that different than cartoons today. A lot of banners, a lot of captions. There's a lot happening. I think I broke this down into smaller pieces. Um, pretty similar. So this is this is the the wagon on the way to heaven. It looks like. Um, so here you see. I don't have my pointer today, unfortunately. So I'll just keep crossing in front. Um, here you've got a penitent. Uh, uh, gentleman. Not a monk because he has a beard and kind of wild hair, but he's, he looks almost Old Testament-like, but he's definitely a penitent. He's sort of dressed in sackcloth and ashes, sitting in a humble wagon. Um, he's being pulled. The horses are being pulled here by um, that's Paul, the Apostle Paul. And up in front is the Bishop of Hippo, Augustine. Augustine and Paul are driving uh, this gospel wagon towards heaven. Uh, over on the far end, their destination is the suffering Christ. Uh, that's where they're headed, and there's lots of descriptions of the challenges that they face. You can see already here there's a, a some kind of devilish creature clinging to the wheels, obstructing the journey, making it difficult. This is from Karlstadt's sermons from 1519, the same year as the Leipzig debate. Uh, here is the... The uh, the low road, so to speak, the sin bin. Um, it's another hockey reference for you. Uh, sin bin on wheels, the penalty box. If you get in trouble in hockey, you go to the penalty box. Uh, here we have uh, some kind of clerical figure. It uh, could be a bishop or an archbishop. Um, he's on his way. No one's hanging on to his wheels. The axle's well greased. They're speeding along. Pulled by uh, some other church officials, where are they headed? It's a tooth, <laughs> right into the mouth of hell. That's where they're headed, um, right, right into the mouth of hell. Um, so Carl Schott had a big imagination, uh, a fiery preacher, and and his preaching was so popular that even Cranach started setting. Uh, some of his ideas into propaganda uh, pamphlets and, and cartoons. So early on, Luther and Karlstadt um, are uh, are compatriots. But while Luther is in the Vortburg, the Reformation takes a slightly different turn under Karlstadt's leadership. He had a number of, of novel ideas. He was what Luther would consider a radical So part of what we're talking about for the next couple days is the rise of radicalism, the application of Luther's theology to society in ways that he didn't always anticipate. And Karl Schott, uh, the first sign of his uh, quote-unquote radicalism is the fact that he became uh, an iconoclast. So what's iconoclasm? You have them. And then you do something to them. No, that's icono duels. You, you smash them. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, right? I mean, iconoclasm doesn't have to necessarily apply to, to religious statues. When we talk about people being iconoclasts today, anyone who, who tackles, dismantles, destroys, cherished, uh, cherished objects, cherished ideas... We can make a distinction already between um, kind of physical material iconoclasm, actually like breaking statues, smashing stained glass windows, destroying religious objects, and and a more rhetorical or intellectual iconoclasm. That author, X, Y, or Z, fill in the blank, uh, in the New York Times is really an iconoclast. They're going after all the sacred cows and cherished ideas etc. So there's different kinds of iconoclasm. You can get a hint from from uh, what's happening over Karl Schott's shoulder here <laughs> which direction he leads in terms of iconoclasm, right? There's a whole bunch of people making mischief. They're breaking stuff. I mean, he's got a battle axe that they're clearly taking to picture frames and, uh, and, and destroying uh, religious art. Um, Karl Schott becomes an iconoclast. So early, as soon as Luther disappears, Um, Karl Schott decides it is time to move the Reformation forward. When when were the 95 Theses posted on the door in Wittenberg? Anyone remember the date? 1517, right? Luther goes into hiding in 1521. What had been accomplished in terms of the change of worship, of liturgy, Luther had been attacking the Mass savagely for several years. The Mass had not been changed. It was still being practiced and celebrated in the same way. That gives you a little hint of how conservative sort of Luther was. Savagely attacking the Mass from the pulpit and then climbing down and, and going through the same liturgy. For several years, this goes on. Nothing had been changed. The Mass was still in Latin. And finally, Karlstadt says, enough, Luther's gone, we're gonna move, we're gonna move uh, this ahead. And so they remove idols, um, they remove religious statues, they remove uh, images, uh, they dismantle the altar. Um, Karlstadt revises the liturgy, he removes whole sections of the mass, um, particularly the parts having to do with the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, the, the sacrificial element of the mass. Um, he he translates uh, what remained of the mass into German. This was always Luther's hope that the mass would be understood by the people, and it wouldn't be an idolatrous thing. And Luther, and Karlstadt's the one who finally um, enacts all these measures. Uh, but but <coughs> Luther will come to think eventually it's all uh, all a little wild. Well, December. 1521, uh, uh, while Luther is hiding away, um, Karlstadt leads a mob uh, into the city church in Wittenberg and removes all the altars uh, in the church uh, in order to prevent idolatry. He sort of carried on inciting the, the mobs, uh, inciting the students in Wittenberg all throughout uh, the Advent season. Uh, a fiery set of Christmas sermons were preached, and it all dramatically culminated uh, on Christmas Eve on Christmas Eve, Wittenberg students interrupted the service that even Karlstadt was presiding over. So it was, things were kind of getting out of even Karlstadt's hands. Interrupted the service, stopped it, and started singing barroom songs. My, my maid has lost her shoe was, was the very famous song that, that, uh, that she sang. It's kind of a dirty song. You can imagine they go looking for it, etc. cetera. Um, this is what happens on, on Christmas Eve, December thirty first, and Luther eventually gets word of this, and this is why Luther comes back from hiding, uh, out in the Wartburg, in order to uh, to try to restore some civility. But as far as um, as far as Karlstadt was was concerned, the issue for those in Wittenberg for the church uh, was a, was a, the problem of idolatry. And idolatry uh, needed to be dealt with firmly by the church leaders. That was his conviction. He had a little uh, slogan, um, out of the eye, out of the heart. And others, remove these things from view, and they'll eventually be out of your heart. So the saints that you might pray to, if you remove them physically from the churches in Wittenberg, eventually they'll be out of the heart as well, out of the eye, out of the heart. Um, That's the slogan that that caught on, to try to eliminate um, idolatry by physically removing these uh, images and altars from the church. Well, the interesting thing about iconoclasm uh, is that it just caught on like wildfire, not just in Wittenberg, but but throughout Europe. Frequently in the early days of the Reformation, uh, Reformation came to cities because mobs uh, indulged in iconoclastic activity. And the city councils uh, were then forced to deal with, uh, with these reform movements. I mean, even in Wittenberg, the city council was forced by the mobs uh, to change the laws on the books in Wittenberg to outlaw uh, idolatry. This happened after the mobs had already removed the idols and the altars from the church. That same kind of thing happened in, in Zurich. Um, things are smashed, things are broken, the mobs are causing uh, problems, and so the city council responds and says, that's right, the new law, remove these things from the churches. Well, they already had been removed. But the city councils were only forced to deal with it because of iconoclastic um, activity. To say a little bit more about iconoclastic activity, because it's, it's really pretty interesting, um, there are all sorts of examples, even outside of Lutheranism, even reformed folks engage in iconoclastic activity. There are all kinds of examples uh, that are interesting to consider. Uh, Some iconoclastic activity wasn't purely destructive. Sometimes it was, uh, I always reverse the initials, DIY, like DIY projects, uh, little repurposing projects. So uh, wood statues um, could be carved into something else uh, or sold for firewood uh, or just given to the poor for firewood. Stone statues could be broken up uh, and used for construction. That kind of thing often happened. Some of the more interesting examples would be um, in Basel, in the city of Basel. Um, I go to Basel to do uh, research from time to time. And in, the, in, in one of the churches in Basel, sort of between the church and the city hall, uh, there was, before the Reformation, a statue of Mary, of the Virgin Mary, holding baby Jesus. Well, the iconoclasts in Basel in 1522, at the same time that Karlstadt was in Wittenberg, um, repurposed this statue. They basically carved off the religious um, symbolism that would identify her as Mary, and, and and carved out, cut out the baby Jesus so that Mary isn't holding baby Jesus anymore. Her hand's kind of out like this. They left her hand intact, and they added new, uh, a new piece, Scales of Justice. And they just left her. Sort of a secularized Mary. She's no longer holding Jesus, she's holding the Scales of Justice, and she's right there between the church and the, and the city council. Um, so there are examples of creative iconoclasts. I'm happy that Basel was a reformed place, so some of those creative iconoclasts were, were in Basel. But mostly, um, iconoclasm was successful because it was destructive. And there's nothing more exciting you know, um, than allowing the youth group to go and break stuff, right? You know, if you watch those DIY shows on TV, the best part about those shows is is demo day when when someone gets the sledgehammer and they get to just, you know, go to town on their kitchen cabinets. Um, It's the same kind of thing. Carl, Carl Truman likes to say, you know, try to get your youth group to show up on Saturday to volunteer to clean the church parking lot or something or pull weeds but but tell them they can all have sledgehammers and go break all the windows in someone else's church, and all of a sudden uh, you might your your youth group might be growing you know exponentially. <laughs> so these aren't entirely uh, good things happening. Uh, but the destructive kinds of, of of iconoclasm are are nonetheless filled with pretty interesting symbolic and theological meaning even. Uh, mostly, uh, iconoclasm had to do with. Uh, with degradation of religious objects um, to treat sacred and religious objects um, not as objects but, but as one historian says but as abject um, as things that, uh, that had no inherent dignity that were just worthless things uh, abjection a sort of level of, of poverty uh, and uselessness uh, that, that, uh, of the kind you'd almost despair of um, and so, a lot of times, um, iconoclasts would, would basically profane uh, the altars. They would break them, obviously, mutilate them, topple them over, disfigure them, um, deface them. Uh, sometimes, part of this degradation uh, of, of religious object would be treating them, uh, treating statues, for example, uh, as, as criminals. What happens in the, in the late medieval world if you steal something? What might happen? Cut you cut a, you, your hand gets cut off, right? Well, apply that same kind of idea to, to religious objects. Uh, in fact, I, hopefully I've got a picture here. My computer went to sleep. Uh, there we go. If you've been giving your money to pay for the construction of religious objects. Now, when the iconoclasts get a hold of it, they actually treat these religious objects as as criminals, cut off hands, cut off heads. And just as in the case with criminals, sometimes you wouldn't, this this one looks like it's being toppled over here, but sometimes you would simply um, degrade them and leave them in place as an example. Um, Another um, very famous one this is uh, a statue of Saint Francis of Assisi from um, the Saint-Gervais Church in Geneva. It's still there. If you go to Geneva, um, the Saint-Gervais Church is, is still standing. It's like a tenth-century church. It's very old. Um, the Iconoclasts got a hold of this of this image of of Saint Francis. And they carved off his little halo, right? His hands are gone, carved out. His ears. His eyes, his mouth, and, and left it there as, as an example um, of, a, of a kind of uh, degradation of a patron saint. N- now rendered basically symbolically blind, deaf, uh, mute, cutting off the hand, powerless uh, to, to help, powerless to help. Uh, that, that, was the, that was the idea. So that's in Geneva. That's what the iconoclasts, the reformed folks were doing. In fact, um, one of the most famous and well-documented um, periods of iconoclasm took place uh, at the founding of the Reformed Church in the Netherlands. Uh, in 1566, uh, the the Wonder Year, it was called, there were waves of, of iconoclastic activity in the Netherlands uh, as the Dutch were sort of embracing Calvinistic Christianity. and And you can kind of almost... It's not an entirely happy story for us, I think we have to admit, right? After a little preaching of the Calvinist religion, uh, there's a caption that's been cut off on on this. This is basically like a a propaganda piece that circulated around uh, at the time, relating back to Germany, these events that had taken place uh, in in the Netherlands. And the caption says, after a little preaching of the Calvinist religion, uh, psalm-singing Calvinists went in, and, and, and dismantled the church. Um, lest you think that iconoclasm is a purely chaotic activity, uh, it isn't, it, it's like Demo Day. Um, it's a pretty well-organized effort, actually. Um, so there are people going up, uh, there's ropes here going up to statues. that They're cooperating, working together to pull down. Others are holding ladders, they're breaking the stained glass windows. That's the altar. There. This is like the front of the church, but they've removed the front of the church, and so we're looking in to kind of get a little window of what's happening. Um, they're removing uh, the altar. Uh, there's a, so many interesting things uh, happening in this. There are men and women together, uh, so it's not just the junior high boys. Um, there, there are women here who are looking on and even helping carry some of the, the goods from the altar uh, away to be repurposed. Um, it 's harder to tell what 's happening over here, but that 's a large uh, clay pot with wine, so it 's possible they were enjoying some light refreshments uh, while, <laughs> while taking part taking care of the church. Um, unfortunately, these look like some thugs here with uh, with sticks. Uh, there are a few cases of of priests being actually attacked um, the, 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 the story goes, um, or the, the line goes, mostly during these waves of iconoclasm, Protestants uh, attacked property, um, and almost exclusively church property, monasteries and, and churches, not to destroy the church, but to remove the idolatrous elements from them. Um, Catholics, when they responded, uh, uh, tended to attack people. I'm not just saying that because we're you know, cheering for the Protestants, um, in this. Uh, but it is true, mostly, mostly Catholics actually attacked people, beat them up, etc., uh, martyred them. Protestants tended to, uh, to mostly uh, attack property, uh, but there are a few cases here of, of uh, in fact there's also some, if we're just airing all the dirty laundry here, um, there are cases of, of, of wealthy Dutch noblemen who may not have had pure intentions for the Calvinist religion, actually paid money, who hired their own iconoclasm squads to go out, to speed along the social unrest, to break free from, uh, from, from uh, the monarchy. Who was in charge of, of, uh, of the Netherlands at the time of the Reformation? The King of Spain. Um, Charles V, Member was the emperor, and he abdicated. He said, enough of this, it's, it's all too much for me. And he split the Holy Roman Empire between his son and his nephew. His son was Philip II, the King of Spain, who was also the king of the Netherlands. And so the Dutch are under Spanish control at this point. And a lot of the Dutch noblemen want to be free of Spanish control. And for some of these people, with not altogether pure motives, the Reformation was a way to cause problems socially. Um, so that's the kind of thing you have happening. What else can we say? We should probably move on. Well, there are dogs here. That's always interesting to talk about. Two little... It's because Protestants are dog lovers. That's, uh, that's clearly, clearly why. No, um, there, are, there are actually documented cases of, of, of some of these iconoclasm squads basically bringing in dogs into the church um, in order to intentionally profane uh, a space or a place that... That was uh, had been thought to be sacred. Um, there are really outrageous examples, uh, even in Geneva, of uh, of lay people, you know, going into the churches and feeding their dog the consecrated host. This is before the Reformation had took place. As a kind of sort of protest, feeding their feeding their dog, right, the body and blood of Christ on a Catholic understanding of the supper. I mean, you you can't imagine anything worse for a Catholic. And then there are little, you know, one-liners of these people feeding their dog the host and saying, you know, now you can die and go to heaven. Um, it's all taken care of for you. Um, so those are some of the darker moments of of, of iconoclasm. Um, Calvin himself uh, didn't didn't take up the anvil, um, uh, or the not the anvil, the hammer, and break things. Um, he, he preferred more the rhetorical style of iconoclasm um, The pen is mightier than the sword And, and actually engaged in an iconoclastic pamphlet writing um, More than you might think uh, Indulging in, in ridicule of those who were given over to, uh, to, to idolatry um, I can skip some of the examples Mostly to summarize Calvin was fairly classy in his ridicule and sarcasm. Um, he was kind of a gentleman about it. Uh, Luther, however, uh, usually went, went right for uh, the kind of toilet, potty-level uh, discussion and iconoclasm. Um, he never himself broke up uh, any churches or smashed any idols. In fact, was wildly against Karl Schott, having done this in, in Wittenberg, as I've, as I've already let on. Um, but he did uh, write... Uh, all kinds of things to try to attack Roman Catholic, uh, uh, pagan uh, idolatrous practices, some of which was was very crass. Um, Just to give you a little little bit of an example, um, this is adult Sunday schools, we have to keep things pious uh, and appropriate, but uh, oftentimes part of the degradation of religious objects uh, that went on in iconoclastic activity uh, was was to, to ridicule them um, in some pretty gross ways, basically to urinate on statues um, after having toppled them, uh, or even worse, um, or to throw them in the latrine, or throw them in the gutter, just leave them in the street, um, You know these, these statues of saints, for example. Um, and, and then oftentimes uh, Luther would, would write about such activity. Um, he had a big imagination and in the medieval world, um, bodily fluids and bodily excrement were sort of part of life. And if you wanted to degradate something, you would associate it with, you know, things that happen in the bathroom. Um, and, and Luther himself unleashed uh, all kinds of pamphlet writing and propaganda writing uh, in order to identify the Pope specifically as this kind of object of ridicule, as someone who should be, should be scorned uh, for his idolatrous uh, actions. Um, so I hesitate to even show this because it's a little gross. So pretend you're in junior high um, at this point and, and it may go a little easier. But Lucas Cranach again, teamed up with Luther and, and they make uh, little cartoons and, and portraits. Uh, here's one of the most famous propaganda pieces of the whole Reformation, right? It's pretty easy to tell what happened. This is the pope sitting in the papal chair holding a papal bull. This is a German peasant. You can tell that because of the little feathers in his hat, the kind of cap he's wearing. And he's basically, you know, passing gas in the pope's face, right? Um, so if you think we're disgusting today, and boy, politics is really dirty, it's really vulgar and disgusting, Right, this is, this is 1540s, okay? This is Lucas Cranach. Um, it's called the Papal Belvedere. The Belvedere is the kind of little portable throne that he's sitting in. So there's a German peasant telling, telling the Pope what he thinks uh, about the papal bull, et cetera. Um, frequently, uh, excrement, bathroom things uh, are also associated with the devil, with demonology. So another thing that Luther and and Cranach put together, if I had to if I had to rank them, I'd say this is probably the most famous propaganda piece of the Reformation. The second and close behind would be um, the joining of, of of basically excrement with the origin uh, of the Pope himself. So this is called the the birth and origin of the papacy. Okay, here's a devil, a demonic creature. Uh, Releasing, shall we say, uh, the Pope from, from his rear end, uh, who's then transferred into a cradle and being nursed by these sort of Medusa like creatures. So, if you've ever wondered, that's where the Pope comes from. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right? But this was wildly successful. This is a kind of iconoclasm uh, that, that Luther, frankly, loved. He thought it was great. Um, and Luther, Calvin is much more classy. Uh, but he did a little bit of this himself. I mean, he would frequently talk about those who were stuck in their idolatrous ways, meaning um, the Roman understanding of the mass, uh, that they were uh, to be understood like um, like soilet, uh, 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 sewer um, or toilet cleaners, you know, like the people who, come, who, who clean up the biffies. If you spend all day cleaning up um, junk, you go home, you smell like junk, but if you spend so much time in it, you may not even be aware that you smell like this. Everyone else can smell it, but you can't. And Calvin says uh, in the Institutes uh, that this is what idolatry is like. You spend so much time in this idolatrous uh, and, and in these idolatrous practices, you don't even recognize what you smell like. But anyone else, in fact, you convince yourself you smell like roses. Um, he actually uses that line. So that line about you think it's something and it smells like roses or, or however that goes, that goes a long ways back. So Luther, or Calvin sometimes did the potty humor thing too, but, but mostly it was Luther. Um, okay, that's, that's the end of the, um, the potty talk. We should move it to a different one just for, uh, we'll leave it there. <coughs> well, what, <coughs> what justification could possibly uh, have been given um, for this? Well, uh, a couple of different things come to mind, and, and it mostly has to do with, with quite honestly, how to understand the Old Testament, um, thinking about iconoclasm generally. Uh, since we only have a few minutes left, I'll, I'll save some of this for next week, um, but to put a fine point on it today and, and then take questions, um, Luther was adamantly opposed to physical iconoclasm, um, to the destruction of, of material things. And so, as, I, as I've said now at least twice, um, he comes back from Wittenberg, or from the Wartburg from the Castle, in part because he thinks that Karlstadt's iconoclastic activity in Wittenberg is going too fast, too far, and it's out of control. And, and he fears that the Reformation will come to be associated with basically a kind of social revolt, mobs in the street, people with pitchforks, and he he doesn't want that to happen. And he's a fundamentally conservative man. Um, So he opposes physical, material sort of iconoclasm. At the same time, he fully embraces the kind of rhetorical uh, iconoclasm, intellectual iconoclasm, as we can see in the propaganda um, pieces. The Reformed, however, um, apart from the leadership, the Reformed laity, um, and even sometimes the leadership were, were mostly accepting of physical iconoclasm of the destruction of, 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 of church property, so to speak. And so you ask, well, why? Why would the Reformed, uh, and there were those outside the Forum, it wasn't just the Reformed, um, but why were the Reformed somewhat, somewhat unique uh, in this in contrast to Luther? I mean, if you've ever been in a Lutheran church, there's a lot of what seemed to us as kind of uncomfortable religious objects still there, right? There's um, crucifixes, pictures of Jesus, genuflections, right? A lot, of, a lot of things like that endure in Lutheranism because Luther shut down Karlstadt, um, said he was a radical. Whereas the Reformed pressed further, we don't have pictures of Jesus here. Um, we don't make signs of the cross and, and have statues, Etc. We don't generally embrace religious art uh, uh, in, in worship the way that, that the Lutherans do. Well, why? Well, I'll go into a longer, more theological explanation um, next week. I think it has to do with, quite honestly, how uh, Reformed and Lutherans uh, read the Old Testament. Um, for Calvin, this is the preview for next week. For Calvin, um, we were, we're living in the days. of of Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel's history is our history. And one of the major themes of the Old Testament is the problem of Israel constantly becoming idolatrous like the other nations. And in most cases um, where idolatrous activity is dealt with, it's dealt with in ways that look a lot like iconoclasm in the 16th century. Um, One further wet your appetite example would be just from Samuel. I love this sermon series on 1st on and 2nd Samuel. If you remember all the way back to 1st Samuel, 1st Samuel 5-ish, it's the early part of 1st Samuel. Um, what happens when the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant? They take the Ark of the Covenant, I think this is in 1st Samuel chapter five. They'd steal the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their temple of worship to the god Dagon. And what happens every single night? What happens to the god Dagon? Face down in the mud, right? Three nights in a row. And then finally, basically, pestilence and boiling pusses and all kinds of horrible things start to happen. And they say, we've got to get rid of this thing. Um, we've got to get, get it back to Israel. Well, That's a kind of example of, of what happens to idols in the Old Testament. Um, we'll say more about that because there's a lot to be said about how Calvin thought of his role as a kind of Old Testament prophet. Um, And it helps explain some of the iconoclastic activity for the Reformed. Um, But the simplest, easiest answer for the sake of today would be um, Catholics and Lutherans count the Ten Commandments differently. And and, and, uh, Reformed recover the Hebrew uh, numbering of the Ten Commandments, which has thou shall not make false idols as its own individual distinct and unique commandment that's to be obeyed. Lutherans uh, leave the counting of the Decalogue unreformed. Uh, they stick with the Roman Catholic counting uh, of the Decalogue, which goes back to the Greek Septuagint. So how do we count the Ten Commandments? Some of you are looking quite puzzled. Um, you probably didn't even know that you could count the Ten There's 10 of them, right? <laughs> we all still get to 10, that's true. Um, but the counting is different. For Lutherans, they combine our first and second commandment into one. So thou have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make false um, uh, images uh, is one commandment for the Lutherans. And in the context of being sort of combined, the making and worshiping of images and idols kind of gets second fiddle. It's, it's not the one that receives the main emphasis. The main emphasis is thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then there's this kind of tacked on stuff that's part of the, uh, part of the rest of the first commandment. Uh, their second commandment then is is to not take the name the Lord's name in vain. Well, how did they still get to ten? That's the always the puzzling question, and and to my mind, just kind of intuitively makes you think, well, this can't be the right way to number the commandments because it's redundant. They split the tenth commandment, our tenth commandment, into two, into two different kinds of uh, of coveting. So the Lutheran uh, and Roman Ninth commandment is don't don't covet someone else's wife. The tenth commandment is don't covet their property, their ox, their mule, or anything. And just kind of intuitively, you think, well, that why why would Moses have been so redundant? Well, I guess God gave him Moses. Why would God be so redundant, right? Um, well, the Reformed, I think, follow the Hebrew way and and count these things differently. So, I think I've used up time because I see Reverend Brown back there, and. Uh, He preaches the gospel from the pulpit, but to me, when I go overtime at Sunday school, it's all law um, and and fire and brimstone, and I don't want to get in trouble. So Um, let's pray. (laughs) Gracious Father, we take uh, great comfort in your sure uh, and reliable word. Uh, The grass withers and the flower fades, um, but the word of the Lord uh, endures forever. Surely uh, we are like the grass, uh, blown away in a moment uh, and sinful, but, uh, but we marvel that you've taken great care uh, for us through your only begotten Son, uh, the Lord Jesus, who was given for us, uh, who made a way from heaven to earth to redeem our lives from the pit. We thank you uh, for his work of salvation, and we thank you for your uh, renewal by the Holy Spirit. Uh, refresh us this Lord's day, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.